Hey, what's up, guys? Rico here, CEO of Source Fine Asia, Coast to Manager Podcast, and host of the Source Fine Asia YouTube channel. Back with another one. And this episode was one of my favorite episodes that I've done for a couple of different reasons. I think it was it was unique because it was an interview and it turned into like a basically a, a discovery call with Eric Yang. So Eric Yang is an entrepreneur who helps people launch virtual summits which is a very relevant business model now especially in a time in COVID-19 era where most of the conferences that we would have had like um, global sources um, Canton Fair all of the stuff has turned they've turned them into virtual summits and I, I just think it's a unique way of presenting content and having multiple speakers and it's just kind of like the way of the future when people can't travel as much Everything's going online. The only reliable thing that has happened during COVID-19 is that online businesses have thrived and continued to grow. And people just realizing that in order for you to have a sustainable business during any sort of crisis, it has to be online. So I really liked it. And then it goes together with what I've been thinking about doing, which is you know launching a course, uh, sort of creating a different revenue stream for SourceFine Asia, but of course, the the course side of things still feeds into the normal manufacturing uh, consulting side of the business, and it's a to me it's a much more sustainable way of scaling our revenue and our business. Like if we want to go from being a mid five figure company, six figure company, sorry, um, in revenue to a seven figure company without having to like hire 50 to 100 employees and you know have this crazy office and operation i think that's the move right so yeah i mean he, i was talking to him and then i just started to pick his brain because i really really got intrigued by this concept of, of virtual summits i mean i knew it existed but i had just hadn't any i hadn't heard anybody describe it the way he does um so and, and also eric's like he's a very good uh, guy a very good talker he's definitely extremely uh good at sales so i enjoyed the conversation just you know we had a lot of besides that that was like later on in the episode i think it was like an hour and a half um the first hour or so of the podcast was just talking about his life his experiences his mindsets he's he also podcast called uh the fuck college podcast <laughs> which again it just tells you like i mean i was like yeah i mean i i completely completely agree with a lot of the way he thinks so overall fascinating conversation i would love to keep in touch with him moving forward and uh just in general if you want to hear what it's like to have somebody sell you something live <laughs> then then uh, i think you'll enjoy this episode as well i don't want to be a product of my environment i want my environment to be a product of me When you meet somebody in a social setting that's maybe outside of your industry, how do you answer the question, what do you do? The easiest way for me to explain to someone what I do is basically saying to them, like I help entrepreneurs and leaders create a legion system that get them paid to generate sales and traffic to their websites. And we do it with our strategy, which is called hosting virtual conferences, uh, the way mm-hmm. I call it virtual summit. And virtual summit is essentially in three words, like a webinar 
a live event and a podcast mixed together that ends up being a virtual summit. And like now more than ever, right, with COVID-19 uh, happening around the world, uh, a lot of those conferences are canceled. And now the, more, the, the world has seen more and more virtual summit popping right and left across like every virtual industry. And it has been just really, really interesting and fundamentally great for the digital marketing industry to have more of those online communities popping right and left because like you know rico there's a lot of people who need answers uh, there's a lot of people who have the questions as well to be able to be answered them in an effective way and the world needs more platforms where leaders are able to distribute this information to the right people at the right time by giving them access to experts who have information but can't convey it to the right audience so uh this is essentially what I do. I uh, help leaders distribute quality information while also helping them through osmosis, through their brand, through their virtual summit to grow their authority, email list, and revenue. Nice. So going back to the beginning, you were born in Paris? Born and raised, man. Born and raised. So well, tell me a little bit more about your background, born in Paris, and then you ended up uh, moving to the U.S., I was born in Paris from two immigrant Chinese parents, and I was always wanted to build a business. But Europe wasn't necessarily like the the best of the best countries in the in the in the world to be able to do that. It's not the worst by any t- term, but you know, growing up, I always wanted to you know be alongside of all the people I read about, all the people I I listened to on the podcast, and I felt like hey, proximity is power. And then I just introduced you know, try to make a list of all the places I should be when it comes to entrepreneurship and building business because, you know, I didn't have a business idea in mind. I just knew I wanted to do it. It's a matter of like how and, and what kind of business I wanted to do. And, you know, I, I studied until like uh, the end of high school. I took a gap year between high school and college because I didn't want to go to college for the sake of going to college. Uh, didn't make sense for me to spend 20, 30,000 US dollars in the US for school if I didn't know what I was going to graduate school for. I didn't also want to be in France, even though education is free, uh, higher education, almost quasi-free. Uh, but I just you know, wanted to be in an environment that fostered entrepreneurship. So this is why I moved to the U.S. And you know, when you think about the brightest and, and the best entrepreneurs in the world, like where they're located, like they are on the West Coast, like in California or the East Coast, like New York area or Boston area. So I preferred the sun over uh, the gray sky. So I picked California okay. and I that's, went to... Uh, that's a, a big part of the reason why I moved to, to, to Southeast Asia. Oh, yeah, dude. <laughs> it is like the West Coast, but much cheaper, dude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, it is much cheaper and people are overall uh, smiling more, I think. Uh, at least where I am in Thailand, I'm sure like in, in, the, in the Philippines or Indonesia, like these people are like always smiling and... The only thing, though, uh, I gotta say, yeah, it's it's really difficult to be to be sad when you know it's sunny and beautiful. <laughs> like I remember, I remember, I think it was so we're in a uh, what's it called the ECQ enhanced community quarantine right now. Uh-huh. Um, so the first we went into ECQ the first time in March, and we were in ECQ for about two and a half months, and then we went into a, a, a less restrictive quarantine for the past couple of months. And then we went, we've gone back into ECQ because there was a spike in COVID cases. But I just remember like the first week or two weeks, I just moved into my condo here in, in PGC in Manila. The view that I have from my window, which I'm sitting in front of right now, 
because I set up a home office in my in my room. Yeah, I can see the 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 Manila Bay. Basically, I can see the ocean, and I can see mm. part of the airport, and you know, there's also I can see part of the skyline from the city. But it's just like when I wake up and I look outside. Like I'll wake up sometimes, and I'll be like, "Fuck, I can't." It's another ECQ day. Like, you know, we're stuck inside, or you know, we we're limited in what we can do. And you look and you see outside, and it's sunny and it's beautiful. And I'm looking at the water. I'm like, man, like this is this is great. Like I can't I can't be <laughs> I can't really be upset for too long, you know? Right. Could be I mean, so the much biggest worse. the biggest thing here, Rico, is like people think it's. You know, like the lifestyle. I don't know what kind of lifestyle you have, but I have really nice lifestyle in Bangkok, and it doesn't cost me an arm every month, man. Like all expenses included, like between you know living really comfortably, like getting massages, like maybe like two or three times a week, and eating really well without really having to think about if I can afford it. Like being able to you know spend twenty five hundred, three thousand US dollars per month on on rent and food and all activities included. To live like as if you were like a king or queen, like I know that this lifestyle will have cost me maybe like ten thousand US dollars a month, like in Los Angeles. Uh, it's just crazy. Yeah, I mean that's uh, when I was. I mean, I li- obviously, I lived in China since two thousand uh, two thousand fourteen, and around two years ago, a year and a half ago, is when I decided to start considering moving. And then I did my research and then I fell on the Philippines for multiple reasons. But like my whole thing was like, if I can live somewhere else, that's not that far away from China. That's, uh, you know, within like a couple hours flight where I would either be spending the same amount of money or less uh, on my cost of living, but exponentially increase uh, the quality of life. It was like, it was a no brainer. So like, yeah, I mean, here in, in BGC, like if you're spending two to three thousand dollars you're definitely living very comfortably like my place is i live with my best friend we have a you know 120 square meter condo that has an amazing view and super comfortable in one of in the nicest area of the city and you know i have a basically a full-time maid and dog walker and like you know right. if i want to I, I don't have to lift a finger you know if i, if I want food and all that stuff is like i get uh, meal prep deliveries for 50 bucks a week like it's it's really nice yeah i mean 50 bucks a week like 50 bucks is what we pay for one dinner <laughs> in new york for a burger <laughs> and a milkshake yeah. but yeah like the, the biggest thing for me man i don't know if how much we let you that is the only downside for me is the variety of the entrepreneurial scene in asia I know that when I was living in LA, living in, in San Diego, living in Santa Barbara, a little bit less heat there, but at least the entrepreneurial scene was like popping right and left, like quasi, like every, everywhere I would go, like I would meet entrepreneurs and it would be great to, you know, mingle around people who, who understand what it's like to be an entrepreneur and, and digital marketer. There are those people in Asia for sure. I can only speak for myself who have lived in Bangkok for now, like almost two years now. That the entrepreneurial scene is here, but it's not as flourishing as it would be back in, back in the Western countries, like you know, like Canada or or even the USA. And I was living in an entrepreneur house in LA, in San Diego, where we we're like five roommates. All of us had businesses and rent a huge mansion, and you know, we had like mastermind dinners like every Monday. We host events to you know build our network, like. I had a much harder time to do that in Asia as I've seen and, and understood that 
the local population, they are not really like entrepreneur driven. They're like more happiness and fulfillment driven. Like if they have this little life and they have the, the job and they can spend time with their friends and family, like that's what a happy life looks like for them. Uh, I know that the entrepreneurs in Asia, at least from what I've seen, are Chinese something like Thai Chinese, Thai Cambodian, Thai Singaporean, right? Uh, sorry, Chinese Thai, Chinese Malay, Chinese Singaporean, right? They're all the ones who build businesses because the local population don't do that. So have you seen something similar where you live? Yeah, so I, I think it. I think it's, I guess, a no thing. I mean, I guess for me, it's because I spent five years in China. When you're saying that, um, you know, the local population isn't as much entrepreneurship driven, whereas like in China, everybody's an entrepreneur. Like it's so normal in China. Like China is one of the first countries that I've been to where I didn't really think about, you know, the, well, right now there's, you know, the whole discussion about equality with women and, and, and in the workplace and entrepreneurship and, you know, making sure that there's more diversity in, 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 in the entrepreneurship space. And they always talk about how, at least in the West, I guess, female founders get like, I think it's what, like 1% of investments and things like that. Mm. And it's it's true, but that's a very much a, a like an American or Western thing. Like in China, it's like, there's just as many female entrepreneurs as there are male entrepreneurs. Like, and, and that was one of the first things I, one of the first things I noticed was just how normal it is for people to start businesses in China. So I might have a little bit of a biased view. Um, I think a lot of my stuff, a lot of my friends besides uh, my Chinese contacts are foreigners. Mm. So I have like all of the foreigners that I know are entrepreneurs. So like I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs even the ones that don't live in China. In the Philippines specifically, I think it's a combination. Like there's most of the, the people I know that are entrepreneurs here are also foreigners, but there's also this like growing population of Filipino American or Filipino Canadian, mm. like second generation immigrants who, you know, their parents moved to the States or even third generation where their grandparents moved to, the, moved to Canada. And now these guys are actually seeing more opportunities in Asia and coming to Asia to start their businesses. So I've, I noticed that, like, I have a very, you know, relatively large community here in BGC where, you know, these guys are people where their parents moved, left the Philippines, and now they've come back and said, hey, I think there's more opportunities here. So I actually think from that perspective, it's good that the entrepreneurship scene is still kind of budding. Because I think that's a big part of the reason why I moved to China and to Asia was like I wanted to go somewhere where it's like on the cusp of, you know, becoming what Silicon Valley is or, or having the same culture in the U.S. Like I want to be there when it's early so that I can I can partake in that and, and enjoy the, the fruits of, of being, you know, one of the early people. But I understand what you're saying in the sense that if you maybe don't have an idea or you are looking to find like a community that can help you grow fast in, in whatever business that you're running. Yeah. It might be a little bit easier to set that up in, in the States, um, especially in a place like LA or, you know, in San Francisco, or even New York. But I think in, in Asia, the difference is just like, it might take a little bit more effort to build something like that up as a community, but there is a lot of expats that will help you and a lot of expats that you can you know network with. And then the local population, I think, just is going to take time to, right. to meet more people 
in, in that space. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 yeah, I agree. Like the local population is less entrepreneurship focused, unless you're talking about China, right? Or people that are of Chinese descent. Let's say even like in Indonesia, I spent a month in Indonesia before I I, I came here, and uh, I noticed like the Indonesian, the Chinese Indonesian population is like five percent or less than 10% of the overall population in the country, but they run like 80% of the businesses. Right. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what is going on here, man? Like, I was like, what's happening? Like what, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's the Chinese way, right? Like if the local population is not doing something, like we're going to build and create something for them and then we're not going to own the land. And that's, you know, like really the Chinese way of operating, man. Like even historically, China has never wanted to quote unquote conquer the world through military forces. They've always like conquered the world like through finances. And, and there was only like until the 19th and maybe like for sure the 20th century, but 19th century, they were still like really strong that, you know, China kind of owned the world in, in, own, in their own way without having to you know, exert like physical dominance through military forces. But like, going to regions or going to countries and buy lands like that's their way of you know acclimating themselves within the culture and slowly slowly being integrated within it right like you know countries usually like they, they use brute forces to go into a country like france like fight england they try to get land fights france goes to italy they try to get land but in chinese way it's like yeah we're gonna buy land from you so that you are okay with us being here and they've done it successfully across all countries ever more now than everywhere the chinese population is going to other countries because they realize that yeah if everyone is an entrepreneur in china i'm competing against my neighbors but if i go to a new country then nobody's my competition like all my neighbors want me to buy from them so it makes yeah. much more sense you know that that now like like you said like china is a standalone case in entrepreneurial spirit in Asia, which is why they're so dominating in, in Southeast Asia now, where, oh, there's no more like Thai Thai people. It's like mostly only Thai Chinese people now. Like the same thing here. The Thai Chinese people are the one that owns like 60, 70% of the land, if not owned by the king himself. So it's really interesting to see like this perspective and hopefully this doesn't like become like a hatred against like, the Chinese ethnicity. But I feel like you know, there are a lot of things that Chinese has done right, but also a lot of things have done wrong when it comes to treating the, the other population. But, you know, that is the other flip of the coin, you know, you can't have it all. Yeah, I didn't know that we would we would get a little bit political, but like, um, I, I guess, you know, I, I guess the tough part is, especially with, with COVID, there's definitely, at least from my industry, what I've seen with some of the the rhetoric from from potential customers or customers uh this has been growing for a couple of years though is people wanting to to source more a little bit outside of china but i think covid pushed that especially if you're talking about americans there's definitely a, a stronger anti-sentiment climate and i think that previously the, the anti-sentiment towards uh china was more just the fear of china becoming a global superpower mm-hmm. and then and I was born in, in Zambia in Southern Africa before we moved to the States in Canada. But when I've gone, like the first time I went back to Zambia was like four years ago and I hadn't been there in 10 years or something like that. And I went there and I was like, the bigger, one of the first things I noticed was just how much the, the population, like the Chinese population had expanded. 
and then I went like every year since that time period, and it becomes more and more. And then you know the 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 Chinese people that came over started businesses and have brought over more employees and stuff. And I noticed even in Zambia, there's a little bit of and the workers that would normally take on let's say construction jobs and things like that, complaining about you know. The Chinese people coming and taking their jobs and stuff. So, I, I think it's tough. Like it's like at the same time they are obviously improving the economy and investing into their country, but then a lot of times people also build. It also builds a little bit of a resentment because they feel like, for sure, you know, why why can't we do this ourselves? Like why does you know why does this country have to take over and and do it? You know, but it's like well, if they're seeing a gap in the market and then they're filling that gap, you can't really blame them fulfilling that gap like i i think it's it's like a difficult it's a difficult political debate you know yeah i mean especially if the country hasn't done or stopped that gap for a long long time then you yeah. know someone else just wouldn't need it to come you know like yeah i mean once again like you can't have something without the other one right like you can't have it all without having a cost on the on the back of the hand so it's uh it's really interesting to see like uh, how the world has shifted recently we try to not go too political here, but um, it's uh, it's really like you are really American or really China right now. Like you know, China China is trying to do a lot of good things or not good thing, good and bad things in Africa right now, trying to buy votes from the countries and investing a ton of money. Overall, from your perspective, man, especially from coming from Zambia, like I mean, you're a little bit biased because you lived in China for like many many years. But has Chinese companies done good things in Zambia overall, or is that like kind of destroying what the country has created so far? No, I think overall it's been positive because I mean Zambia's economy has improved significantly. I mean, part of that is not just Chinese investment; it's just foreign investment because Zambia is one of the more investment-friendly, foreign investment-friendly uh, countries and stable and there's never been any sort of like civil wars or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the, the first language in Zambia is English, so that helps. But I think the, the, bigger, the biggest issue with China going into some of the African countries specifically, and I can't speak on every single country, it's just my limited knowledge, is the African government's not really seeing the long-term negative effects right. um, of the deals that they're making. So like some of the stuff where they borrowed money, you know, China's made deals with countries where they say, okay, if you can't pay this back in X amount of years, then what we'll do is we'll buy natural resources from you at a discounted rate. Now, you know, it's like, well, there's a limited amount of natural resources and, you know, that stuff is usually sold to other countries and stuff like that. So now if China is buying that from those countries at a discounted rate, like how does that affect those countries long-term? You know what I mean? Yeah. And then just in, just, just, I just feel like, yeah, the countries are only seeing the short-term value of like, oh yeah, we're going to get all this investment and all this money. But they also need to be a little bit more strategic and think like, okay, we need to put, we have to set rules for this investment. Like with these, with, you know, the Chinese entrepreneurs coming in, like, for example, one thing that a uh, model that South Africa did after apartheid was any foreign investors or even the foreign-owned companies in South Africa that were already there had to have, I think, a certain percentage of ownership, you know, from an, a local, from a South African. So that ultimately what 
that ended up doing was it forced a lot of the companies to promote uh, locally and find local talent. And, mm. you know, that that then allows like, okay, you have a foreign company coming in, but then you still have local executives at the top level that can make sure that things are still benefiting the country. And it's not just like money being taken out of the country. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so it's things like that. I think like the, you know, sort of African leaders have to take into consideration because yeah the long-term effects could be could be bad i mean the smart thing with china the, the way that you know it kind of screws the other country is that even if china is losing they're still winning in the skills right like if the company if the country can't pay the the the, the debt or the, the payment they'll win because they need resources or they don't need cash they need resources right and they need to be able to leverage off their power over the other countries because of those trades yep. and 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 again, if they lose, they still win, and that is the Chinese way of the business. Like, hey, like even if this this deal falls off, like how can we scrap whatever we have? And sometimes what they lose is actually the win they were looking to get. And the last question on on this subject, I know that wasn't the intent of our call, of the conversation, but the other thing I've really seen, and you know, like I go to Shanghai every year to see my mom, and she she owns a company over there, so. She actually owns a fashion school, so she gets a lot of students in and out, and she talks to me a lot about it, and um, I would love to hear your perspective on that. But I think the biggest issue that I see uh, within the youth of Chinese population is uh, mental health, man, uh, mental health mm-hmm. and depression, the lack of purpose, because a big reason why like China is still doing so well is because they're really money focused which is more like safety focused but once they have been taken care of financially and most children actually don't need, even need to work because their parents work their way out the, their ass off to make the company really successful like, which is like 10 or 1000 times more successful than they could ever dream of and other kids kind of like grow up soft and lost and they spend their parents money doing you know parties and this kind of stuff which is great but they don't have a purpose and there's so many stories of people who feel stuck and they don't know how they can complain because they have it all, but they still feel depressed. Like, is that something you have seen going more and more in China since you were there? Or is that something you haven't even you know, thought about? I, I don't think I've seen, I mean, I guess on some small level, I've seen people being lost, maybe not depression as much. Cause if you're talking about the youth, I'm not as connected to that, you know, like especially my last three years or so in China, two, three years in China, I was really just focused on work. You know, when I first got to China, I taught English for a year. And mm. that time I was, I was very much more connected to seeing what was going on with people that were like, because my students were, were, the age range was between like about 16, 18 years old to uh, 40s mostly housewives and then you know uh, teenagers that were either about to go to college or like in their first year in college wanted to go abroad and what i did notice was just a difference in mentality like some of my employees or my interns that were above a certain age they were very much focused on making money and advancing their careers and then some of the ones that were younger there was definitely more of an aspect of wanting to fulfill like their life and be happy there was definitely more of like that thinking rather than just being like oh i just want to make x amount of money i just want to do this i want to get married by this age i was definitely having more conversations with younger chinese people about like 
what makes them happy and what they like to do and things like that. I think the difficult thing in China, though, is like if you if you're not successful, if you don't come from a successful family, and you follow through the education system, and if you don't get good grades, it becomes very difficult to choose what you want to do because they、right. they kind of have that system that if you don't do well in high school, you don't do well in middle school, they put you into vocational school. If you don't have good grades in high school, you don't really get to choose which university you go to. You kind of get pushed into certain Fields, and I think that's that's a difficult that's a difficult aspect as well. But I could see I could see that with the way things have been, the education system, the the way that the, the economy's grown with the whole, I guess, the factory mindset.、Hmm. You have a bunch of kids that are coming up that are basically like millennials that want to choose and want to take control of their lives. And the system is not really set up for that, so I could see that being a problem moving forward. Yeah, I mean Gen Z, right? Like the generation that like that is now like the ninety-five and above. Yeah,、like. but then I always feel like、uh, I mean maybe it's it's advancing, but I always feel like China is still a little bit behind. So it's like even if even if technically the Gen Z, it's they're more like you know in the millennial stage <laughs> at this stage. Sure. You know what I mean? Uh, just from just from like a, a cultural standpoint, because yeah, I mean, I even just like the the kids that I I knew, it's like they were just beginning to explore, you know, using a VPN to access Facebook <laughs> and Instagram and stuff like that. You know what I mean? It was just like they were on the cusp of kind of trying to see what's going on more outside of China, whereas like some of the older people just didn't really care. They're like, what's the point of me checking? Facebook、right. or Google, like I'm just gonna use, you know, WeChat and and the the local social media apps, you know.、Um, but yeah, the younger generation seems to be asking a little bit more. What's going on outside of China? What's what? Why why do people like Instagram so much? Why do people like Facebook so much? Like, what, what is the difference between these applications and the apps that we have in China? Yeah, that that, that makes sense. That, that makes total sense. And you know, like when it comes to brand and business, back to that conversation, right? Is like, it, it's one thing to be known、uh, locally for what for what you know, for what you do, but it's another thing to be able to reach to an international audience because you never know where opportunities might come from. Like with your podcast, I'm sure, like you got people from all over the world who listen to you, and might have like struck deals that came out of nowhere. Because you, you know, you have a platform that allows you to share information on a digital platform that grows authority and, and trust, and also leverage off your network, right? To be able to not only、uh, allow you to ask yourself this question, like the way you shared earlier, which is brilliant, because you are almost like treating every session as if it was a one-on-one、uh, consultation process for a certain topic. But two is. Uh, the people who actually get interviewed,、uh, I'm sure, like most of them, if not all, they are actually grateful and thankful that you allowed them to share the messages, and because you're doing the hard work of broadcasting that to thousands or tens of thousands of listeners every month. Yeah, and、uh, speaking of podcasts, you have your own podcast called the Fuck College Podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, man.、Uh, Yeah, I I I dropped out of college at twenty. I never intended actually to graduate.、Uh, it was always a, a way for me to get a visa to stay in the U.S. long term. And then I w- I always told myself that I would drop out when my business can't take off. And 
you know, there's, there's one side of the story, which is like, hey, I'm going to college to make my parents happy because otherwise, you know, like it, it, the entrepreneurial journey is hard enough. If you have the parental pressure on top of that, it gets really unbearable, right? So while I was, you know, going to college, yeah, I, 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 can, I, I can relate because I used college as a way to come to China. Like, so when I finished um, school in, in Canada, I mean, I, I didn't have that much money. I was, I was still a student. So I was like, all right, I'm going to save up money over the summer. But then I also spoke to my parents. I told my parents that I wanted to move to China like a year before that. And I, I, right. I gave them a bunch of reasons. But I also just, I told them, I was like, yeah, I want to, you know, go study Chinese and, you know, further my business education in, in university. So like they pay, they basically paid for my, for my, um, for me to move from, from Toronto to, to Guangzhou. But I also was in the back of my mind, like I'm only coming, I'm using this like student visa to come here. And the goal was always like, okay, once the business uh, starts to pick up, then, you know, I drop out. So I can definitely relate to that mentality. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to tell them everything, right? <laughs> like, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> like if you told them like, I'm going to China uh, on a bit on an education visa so that I can drop out when this takes up, it'd be like, no way, Jose, you're not going there. Right? Yeah, no way. Like, I'm, not, I'm not paying for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like you do, you do that with your money, right? And you only share the success. And obviously, like, you know, when they ask you, like, how school going, like, how the grades, like, you can show them, right? Like, you give them what they want to see so that on the back of your head, you can hustle and, and create what you need to create. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, at the end of the day, I think they, they're happy that I, I, I did that because, I mean, now it's like, all right, like, uh, you know, I've taken my parents out to expensive dinners. I right. sometimes send them nice little presents and things like that. Like, I've... I've sent money for some investment opportunities. So it's definitely, it's definitely paid off for them. Right. Uh, Yeah. I mean, this this is a right way of dropping out of college, right? Like I think that the way that we've done is we drop out when one project was really promising. And then we had the option of being able to pursue that because we have worked our ass off to build a project like a year or two years earlier. But there's something like people who's like, I'm going to drop out, then figure out what I'm going to do. And I think that's really like immature uh, to do it because you, it's like an unplanned way of, you know, shooting yourself in the foot. And then you have not only the parental pressure, but then you have the financial pressure. Then you have your own pressure. And then on top of that, on top of building your own business, which is tough enough once again. Um, so I, I really believe that school is not built for entrepreneurs and, you know, like, unless you want to become a doctor, lawyer, or a teacher, like, school doesn't really offer, like, a lot of things that you can't learn online. And I think that what people miss the most is maybe, like, these social environments. But I'm sure, like, you can relate to that as well, Rico. Like, school is not the only place you can meet, like, like-minded people. Like, there's so many places that you can go, like, dinners and entrepreneurial events, conferences, workshops. Yeah, it just, re- it just requires a little bit more effort. I mean, it's funny. We have a lot of the same perspectives when it comes to this like i agree 100 percent that with college it's like unless you're bec- unless you're doing something that is a specialized career like a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant then yeah you and you have to get licensing for those things then it makes sense to 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 have to be in that formal education setting but like for things like business for things like marketing for things like fashion it's like there isn't you know there isn't much need for that like uh most of the stuff that i've learned about entrepreneurship has been after school through, Mm. you know, books that I've read through 
people that I've met, mentors through actually working on, on a company. And then the networking aspect from college, which I also think is super important, is something that like, I guess when you're 18, depending on who you are, I guess if you're Gary Vaynerchuk, then maybe it's different. But like when you're 18, you don't really know how you would go about building a network because you're just so used to being in high school and then moving on to the next thing. But after about a year or so of being in school, two years of being in school, I, I met a lot of cool people in college, but I, I didn't necessarily have a strong network of people that were very much interested in what I wanted to do, which was to start a right. company by a certain age and things like that. So I actually started going online and finding um, online forums in that had people that were based in Toronto that were, had similar interests. And then we started to meet in person. And then, you know, then I built up that network and those guys, a lot of those guys are still my best friends from up to today. And, you know, they're all, they're all entrepreneurs and living around the world. And we, we, you know, help each other out and encourage each other. So it's like, yeah, you can definitely build that network without having to go to school. It just has to, you just have to put a little bit more effort or you need a little bit more guidance. With, with right. That. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you relate to that, but I feel like school is the lazy way of someone's thought process of cool. I don't know what I'm going to do. So I'm going to go to college. Right. So when, when you build a business, right, you build a business like intentionally, right. You have intention behind it and you go build it. But there's so many people who go to school because that's just a logical way of doing life according to them, because everyone else is doing it, but they don't know what they go to school for. Like, Hey, I'm going to go to school so I can get a job. But the problem is that they don't know what kind of job they want. And, and I don't think that school is a place for you to figure out what kind of job you want. I think school is a great place for you to get the job you want. If you know what it is already, but spending so much money and time, right? Like you are in your prime time, where you can explore literally everything you want and, and need to want to, to create within a small time frame. And I think that, I mean, again, the teachers most of the time, like I had a business teacher, dude, that taught entrepreneurship at my school and I took it for the sake of taking it just to see what, what was going on with here. And she never built a business herself. Like <laughs> I'm not going to learn from someone who never built a business herself. Like she's like, yeah, I consultant for other companies, but I was like, yeah, cool. But do you build a business yourself? It's like, she did not. And it's like taking advice about health from someone who is super overweight, like the same principle, right? It doesn't make sense for people to listen to someone who is not who they want to become more like. And I think that so many yeah. students are, are lost because they listen to their parents or teachers who are giving them advice when those people are not people that they want to become more like. And when a mentor or someone that we look up to that gave us advice, we take it because this is what someone has done to become someone that we want to become more like. But when a teacher yeah. or a school counselor gives us advice, so like one, most of them don't really care. That's their job, right? Maybe they do care, but they don't really know how to help. And they're going to be the kid. They're going to be even more lost. And I think that there needs to be like a requirement or I don't know what it is, like just self-awareness, right? That you need to know at least like, what kind of life do you want to have and who do you want to become more like and be able to find these people and ask advice from them directly as opposed to asking teachers or institutions to give you the pathways of maybe my sheer luck sometimes to figure out what you want to do. And I think that a lot of people realize this like after the fact of spending four, six years and maybe a hundred thousand US dollars on education that I didn't need that degree. It, it looks nice. It feels great for parents to brag about their kids about it, but it didn't do much for you. 
And, and then they realize like, oh, shoot, I shouldn't have listened to other people. I should have like spent more time on figuring out what I wanted to do for myself. And this is why I say fuck college, not like fuck institution because school is really important if you know what you want to do. But college should not be your by default path. Mm-hmm. That, that's my biggest path, uh, my, my, my biggest thing on, about college, man. What, um, so I guess going back to the, the actual business, so can you talk about what your, your, your business currently does and how it works? So my first six figure business was at 20 years old where I went to so many conferences, uh, in the U S and maybe like 50, 60 plus within two years while I was in college. And I realized that I was almost always the youngest one in the room. And I couldn't find other like like-minded young entrepreneurs who were driven, ambitious, but also kind, and people who are not about this like Lamborghini lifestyle, right? <laughs> like yeah. there's something like young people now they're like, you know, they they have a business and they might or might not own a Lamborghini, but at least they show off of it. Like I'm not about this lifestyle, and I tried to meet those people, and you know, I had a really hard time. So. I basically created the event I wish I had, which was uh, a conferences, uh, a business conference for digital marketers under 35 who are making above six figure and I sold tickets to that uh, and I invited speakers to share their knowledge because I didn't have any business experience. So I invited other people who had and I basically acted as a knowledge broker by sending tickets to attendees who were interested to be part of this network. And I quickly realized that the event business is quite unscalable. Uh, didn't make much sense for me to spend six months to rent the venue, to do marketing, to do website, to invite speakers and attendees to see literally everything disappear the day after the event ends because I would have to redo the exact same work to pull out the same event. So I shifted my business to the virtual uh, conference uh, business model. And my first virtual summit, my virtual event, had literally 10 times more attendees, generated 15 times more profit, and took half the time it took me to launch an in-person conference. And I kept doing it over and over again. And now across like our conferences, we gather like 50,000 plus attendees, virtual attendees uh, across our events. And uh, like the biggest thing that I've learned is being able to leverage off someone else's authority and knowledge and be able to grow your own influence and email list through their um, authority so they can grow your own. And we've been doing this over and over across like 20 plus industries and, uh, and now become a reference within the uh, virtual summit industry as a builder for those conferences. So, so can you just say the name of the company again? Oh, uh, Lead Next Gen. And then what's the website? Leadnextgen.com. Awesome. So, uh, what have you seen happen with uh, COVID with regards to your business? Um, you know, like I've always reached out to companies prior to COVID-19 when it comes to sponsoring and speaking. They're like, oh, virtual conferences, they're not good. You can't have the networking events, which I agree. Like the biggest, you know, virtue of a in-person conference is the people you meet in person. Like that's that relationship, that connection is something that can't be built online uh, or not as strong as you can do it online. But now that company realized that for the whole year of 2020, maybe even like beginning of 2021, that those conferences are not going to popping in again. Uh, they have shifted you know, the entire business model to the virtual space where a lot of people who 
have done virtual conferences early on, like in Q1, Q2, they realized that the cost of putting on an event is like 10% of what they have to spend on an in-person conference. So, and the reach is so much bigger because there's no seating, right? Uh, like virtual seating almost, where if you have a venue of 100 people, you can only have 100 people coming to your in-person conference, but because you have it online, you can have a quasi unlimited amount of attendees and companies have slowly realized that virtual summit is a great way for you to generate leads and authority and, and email lists for your company, but also be able to continue using the strategy uh, across their marketing channels. Because for someone who is, especially as a uh, small business owner, who is interested to build and become an influencer, being able to gather like 20, 30 speakers, the way that you're doing on the podcast, but also being able to capture the email as a trade for having a free ticket for the conferences and be able to give away and crowdsource the information through someone else's content without having you as a host do the work and be able to relaunch that event every month, every week. We do it every two days right now uh, to new audiences. It's a powerful way that I've seen the industry shift from the in-person conference to the virtual summit space and more and more people in the digital marketing space uh, who have been running webinars in the past have done virtual summit now. And it's been really interesting to see the shift within this industry since uh, February or March, uh, March of 2020. So you said you're doing it every two days. So is that like, uh, I guess, different different topics or you know, like yeah. the same topic, different audiences or how does it work? Yeah, great question, man. Um, it's actually the same content, the same topic. Uh, but the event is evergreen, right? So we, we created a way for audiences when we do Facebook ads or uh, targeting online that when you click on the ad, the dates and the sequence of the event is starting two days after you opt in, right? So someone that finds the ad on January 1st, the event will start for them on January 3rd. Someone that finds the content on February 4th, the event will start for them February 6th. And all the sessions are pre-recorded but they are released as if it was a live sequence unique to the customer's timestamp. And okay. uh, we actually give, you know, a heads up to all attendees, like all the sessions are pre-recorded, but if they want to rewatch it uh, because all the sessions are only available for 24 hours on each day and they want to buy bonuses on top of that, they can buy what we call the Alexis Pass, which is a way for people to build an email list because you have to trade in an email for a ticket, right? But then if you want to own the content on top of the bonuses, you can buy them. So this freemium business model allows you to not only have the email list, but also have the revenue side. And the funnel of the degeneration side of it allows you to actually profit from generating leads for your business. And then you can obviously sell things on the back end of it, so your services, your agency, your consulting, your courses, uh, but have the front end of your funnel be profitable so you don't have to think about like losing money on a webinar for example as many other people will share is there like have you done just i'm thinking about my audience have you done any sort of summits that were focused around manufacturing or e-commerce yeah we actually done a uh that was actually a year and a half ago where we did a uh e-commerce summit called the elite seller summit and I believe this conference gathered 22,000 attendees. Uh, and uh, I was more acting as a consultant for them because they were interested in, in sponsorship. 
And after like our two hour conversation about sponsorship, like within a week later, they raised like 22,000 US dollars in sponsorship and they reinvested 100% of that money back into the marketing and basically like having 22,000 US dollars uh, spent on ads, which allowed them to get more audiences, more emails. Uh, I think that from this budget, they added an additional 7,000 attendees that was purely like sponsored and given and funded by, that, that by other companies that wanted to have more eyeballs to their other audiences and uh, more and more e-commerce and drop shipping and manufacturing somehow are popping out there. But it doesn't mean that necessarily that when someone does it, they do it well because uh, there's so many summits that just think that putting a big name out there is going to work, but there's actually a funnel behind it where you want to make your virtual summit as if it was a course, right? Making every session as if it was a course of session giving by speakers that all the sessions are, can be watched as a standalone, but every session is also interconnected from one to another. And, and this allows you to basically give a taste of what it is like to work with you and having the virtual summit as if it was a do-it-yourself kind of format. And this is what we've done for some agencies where the summit content was a do-it-yourself kind of format for the attendees. And then there was a course on the back end, which is like a done with you. And then for the people who are, don't have the time to even do the course, they will upsell them to a done for you from the agency. And this allowed them to get like hundreds of strategy uh, sessions and positional leads for their clients. All right. So now I'm, I'm going to ask some selfish questions because I'm kind of in the process of, of trying to build out the course as well. Not even I'm kind of, I'm in the process of trying to build out a course. Yep. Um, so how does that work exactly? If you're talking about a summit, like I may, because I, when I, when I hear summit, I'm thinking like, you know, having five, 10 plus experts giving presentations and things like that. Like, it seems like it would be a lot to, to organize if I'm, if I'm doing it by myself and I'm doing it specifically for, you know, lead generation. So how does that work? And then, so there's the actual summit that you present as almost like a, a live event. And then you shift people into uh, the course, which would be you've done with you. Or, or is the I guess the course would be they, they can do it themselves and then you also provide like done with you or done for you services. Yeah. Um, so even the first launch of a virtual summit, we do it pre-recorded, yeah. right? So all the sessions are recorded ahead of time, so it's easier for you to organize. The fastest. So am I? So am I then like reaching out to my network and then trying to organize, you know, five of my entrepreneurship friends in the same space to to do some sort of short presentation pretty much and this is like the the gap between doing virtual summit and doing great virtual summit right like whatever the course is right uh, i think the thing that we the grace is giving like a concrete example so i have a virtual summit on how to do a virtual summit right so i have an agency that does virtual summits but uh, i have a virtual summit teaching how to do virtual summit and we launched that virtual summit in 45 days which was the fastest we ever done it where I interviewed actually some of my past clients to talk about specific things they were the greatest at, like how to interview, how to raise sponsorship money, how to run ads, right? And then I also make a list of all the components that I would need it to fulfill myself as if it were a course, such as why we do a virtual summit. That, that would be on day one, right? The foundation, like why we do a virtual summit. How do you get speakers? How do you get sponsors? How do you actually create an offer for your virtual summit, right? Uh, or then how to convert your virtual summit into podcast episodes or into book. Uh, all those like, topics or themes that would actually be on our two sessions on a course, 
I recorded them as if there was an interview, right? If I can find a speaker to talk about one specific uh, theme, then I will have the speaker only talk about this one thing. Because otherwise, I would need to create my own sessions and create my own pre- presentation, right, to do it. But then I actually ask my speaker or uh, your speakers here in your case, the things that you know they can almost answer better than you and be able to have them share this information. And then when someone goes for the journey, right, like, hey, I, I want to do virtual summit, but I have no idea. Well, I give them on day one, hey, this is how you find your profitable virtual summit niche. This is how you research your speakers. This is how you research your sponsors, right? So that's the foundation. And then on day two, what I've done is after you've done the foundation, which is the whole thing about the niching now, the day two is all about the tech setup, like how to set up with your funnel, how to make sure like all the things are automated, how to make sure the conversion rates are doing great or how can you optimize them, right? And then after that on day three, it's like, cool, you've done day one, day two. Day three is all about how to use that platform to generate leads for your agency or for your course or for your business, right? So step one, step two, step three, which will almost be like a step one, step two, step three of my virtual summit course. The only difference here is I crowdsource the creation of this quote unquote course that I call virtual uh-huh. summit are able to give a preview of what is actually work with me because the speakers or the people that I've chosen, I know they're great and I know they have kind of worked with me in the past and they can actually, you know, like be saying, Wow, Eric helped, was the one who helped me raise 75,000 USRs in sponsorship. Eric was the one that allowed me to get a billionaire on my virtual summit for free. Um, so for you, man, is asking yourself like in your course, like what kind of topics that needed to be tackled for someone to be ready to work with you, right? Maybe like there's some yeah. things that clients are not ideal fits yet, but having a virtual summit that allows them to do the homework ahead of time so that by the time they finish it, they get some success and then they are ready to work with you because you actually already help them get successful like for quote unquote free or for like a really small price, then they're going to imagine like what it's like to work with you if they were to pay you more, right? So same. So one, so one, okay, so I mean, I have so many questions, uh, <laughs> but I, I'll try not to take too much of your time. Um, time. No worries. So, so two things I get, how do I sign up for that virtual summit where you talked about how to set up a virtual summit? Cause that's, I want myself to sign up and I also want my content marketing guy to sign up. And then the second thing would be like, just in the sense of like, cause I, when I'm hearing you talk about it, I'm like, I basically do this already in my podcast. Like I, I interview people that, and I used to, I used to have a more manufacturing focus in the first couple of years, because obviously I was also more so learning. Now I, I like to talk about, I like to talk to entrepreneurs that are in um, uh, complementary spaces. It doesn't necessarily have to be hundred percent manufacturing. That's why we're having this interview right now. But I'm thinking like, when you do these interviews, are you, you know, is it, is it just like this where, you know, it's non-video? Are you doing a video call or, you know, do you ask the person to, to make a, a present, like a slide? Because I recently, one of my friends launched a, a course, it's called 90 Day FBA, meaning you launch a product on Amazon in 90 days. And then they asked me to come on and do essentially like, you know, a, a presentation and I've, I've, one of the things I said to them was like, I don't know. I mean, I, you're my buddy, so I'll, I'll help you out. I'll, I'll repurpose one of my old presentations for this. But I was like, I don't know if the average person you reach out to is going to want to do that. Like, they probably want it to be as easy as possible and just be like a, an interview. So I guess my question is, does it matter? Does it make a big difference if 
if I'm interviewing somebody and it's just an audio call and you know pictures or just like a normal video call and as, a, as an interview rather than trying to get them to put together an actual presentation for the summit yeah uh so i'll answer those two questions sequentially one we're actually on the finishing touch of doing the 2.0 so i'll send you a link of uh, our website when it's done so you can attend for free uh the ticket's free you can actually experience the whole thing and understand the funnel as well to understand what a virtual summit is as well while also getting lessons about virtual summits which is why we've done it because a lot of people want to do it but they don't understand it but by going through our funnel they understand it and they also learn from it so that's one the second thing is, uh, from what I heard from you, is what's the, the format of this interview that we do on Virtual Summit? Yeah. So we do 100% of them video. And the reason why is because it has like a really high repurposing potential. It's, really, it's much harder for you to run like, you know, ads or graphics or snippets for YouTube or other video channels or Instagram if you were only to be audio. And when someone sees your face, they can associate your face to someone else's, which allows you to grow your authority. And then when you go online and people see you more and more, it's like, oh, I recognize this person's face because I've seen him on the summit. I think the biggest authority tool for anyone is be able to uh, grow your authority through osmosis by associating yourself with a bigger brand. But then because you're the host of it, people will naturally think that you're as big, if not bigger than the brand itself. This has countlessly happened to, to our clients and myself where I was seen as an expert and people were actually, you know, asking like, and telling me like, oh, I was a great speaker. But then you realize, and I'm sure you realize this as well, Rico, is that when you host people, you don't talk much. You ask the questions, right? But then people really think that you're the one who speaks all the time and I got actually 10 plus speaking gigs in two weeks after my, my virtual summit ended. And they were like, oh, great speech, Eric. I want you to, you know, uh, fly over to Malaysia and speak to my tribe of 500 entrepreneurs. I'm like, all right. And it's like, how much, you know, do you charge for that? And I never got charged for that. So like 2K, US dollars. Like, all right, cool. I'm going to fly you as well and pay the hotel. I was like, okay, that sounds great, right? <laughs> and, and this happened like all the time. And uh, going back to the question of presentation style or interview style, well, as long as you know what the speaker is going to talk about, you can navigate without a slideshow, right? Uh, I think that for some topics, it would be better to have a slideshow. I know that, for yeah. example, if you talk about Facebook ads, better to have visual presentations because the audience can relate more. But if it's more about strategy and, and the, the macros kind of things, then no need. So something you have to also keep in mind is speakers love to speak. If you reach uh -huh. out to a speaker that talks a lot, he always has like at least two or three slideshows that are dedicated for certain type of audiences. So it's actually better for them to almost invite them to speak about some things that they have practiced over and over again because they have gotten great yeah. feedback from the audience. Uh, the only thing I'll, I'll be like telling you is when you invite the speakers, you have to tell them this is a pitch-free industry or a platform. Like nobody else but you is allowed to pitch and nobody besides you is allowed to sell unless there's being a contract between you and the speaker or sponsor. And this is where the sponsorship comes in, man, where the sponsors pay you because they are using this pay to win kind of card that allows them to pitch in front of the audiences because they actually pay you access for that. So this is why we, we have raised an average like 25,000 US dollars in sponsorship per virtual summit because the sponsors were really interested to 
present the product in front of our audiences of thousands of idea, of idea clients that will have costed them like tens of thousands of US dollars to get in front of those people. And then yeah. you can do this over and over again because once again, it is online, right? It is virtual. So you can always swap the people who were not as great on the speaker side and add new sponsors or new speakers as you grow a network and be able to upsell the audience from a virtual summit to a course because they actually got a taste of what it's like to have your content within your ecosystem. And those people are going to trust you way more from, oh, I've digested 15, 20 hours of content from Rico than if it was uh, I'm buying from Rico on a, a funnel where I never heard of him before. Do you have any generally accepted rules in terms of like how many presentations you know how many hours of content like you're giving away in the in the virtual summit yeah uh for first virtual summit i always say more than 12 less than 30 how many days uh is often the, the next question so mm. three days is a sweet spot friday saturday sunday is a sweet spot so rough so you're saying roughly like four presenters a day for for minimum right four to six will be the sweet spots uh something you have to realize is you can have four speaker presentation or five mm. but also you can have your own session dude like so many people yeah. are forgetting that they can have their own session like so many podcasts that i see like they don't have the host doesn't have his own session where he or she can share his golden nugget because at the end of the day if you're trying to sell your program people need to see that you are the best expert within your own virtual summit so on each day, you can do like a recap. We can do your own presentation. So you can do four speakers and then your session. So it's like five a day, five, 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 that's 15. And that's potentially like either eight to 16 hours of world content if you do like 30 minutes or an hour per session. That makes sense, man. You just, you just gave me a really, good, a really good idea. I mean, I wasn't thinking about virtual summits before talking to you. Like I was really focused on uh, using, using a webinar to launch our, our course. But I, I think, I mean, obviously, I'd would, I would love to talk to you a little bit more about this, um, maybe after the the podcast, because <laughs> it's, sure. it's, it's going to turn into a discovery call. Yeah, uh, uh, but I mean, let's let, let's <laughs> be like selfish here, man. The biggest thing, man, is uh, one of our past clients, and and a lot of people do that yeah. now. Is she she's a design designer, right? She's a well-established designer, uh, an entrepreneur, and she taught designers how to do the business side of design of web design. Mm. And she wants to launch a course, uh, but she didn't have an audience, right? She literally had zero emails. Uh, after doing the virtual summit, she had, I believe, 3,200 emails. And her mm. course was not created yet. So what she did was she created like a mock-up of what her course would look like, a 12 weeks program. And she pre-sold the course to her audience because she wasn't going to create a course that nobody was going to buy. So she pre-sold yeah. the course. And then when it got like, 50, 75, 100 sales, she'd be like, cool, this course will be created three weeks from now. And then she went on to grind it because if nobody bought it or only a few bought it, she could give a refund and refine her thing and then offer something else a few months later to 3,200 potential buyers. Yeah, that, I mean, we, I, we, I mean, our email list is okay. We could definitely do more. I feel like something like this would help promote with that. So, so then I guess um, another question I would have is like, how, what's the incentive? The obvious incentive for the speakers is, Hey, you know, you've been expert and you know, the, a lot of the students or the people that go through this course will want to use your services. But you know, do you, 
promise anything else? Do you promise them access to the, like the email list? Do you promise them? I know you said the sponsors, maybe. Uh, how does that work exactly in terms of yeah. incentivizing the speakers? Uh, no access to emails. That is your goal, mate. So you want to protect it. Mm. You only allow people to come in if they pay an entrance fee, which is sponsorship or partnership, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can trade stages like, hey, uh, or trade emails. You promo me, I promote you. You know, so mm. it's a win-win. But do protect it super well, man. Uh, that is your biggest asset. Two is when a speaker talks about what they're the greatest at, like thinking a bit back to the course, right? Let's say that uh, when a speaker, she talks on my virtual summit about the, how to be a great speaker or how to be a great host. This person happened to have a course on how to interview people in an amazing way, right? Yeah. Well, I position him or her as the greatest as pers- person that can teach you how to become a great uh, host. And I do say, like, hey, if you are interested to learn more, there's a course here, you can check her out, but there's no pitch. Like I position her as the go-to expert within her niche, mm. within my theme, right? And can do this over and over again. For example, for you and, and, and e-commerce, you can have someone who creates content about Facebook ads. And on my summit, you'd be like, hey, you be my Facebook ads about FBA. Are you interested? And yeah. You said to him or her, like, hey, you're going to talk in front of potentially 500 people without you know, paying for that. Are you in? And for them, it's like yeah. a no-brainer, right? So it's you flip it. And you need to flip it. Which ever, is Evergreen the, content. Okay. Right, exactly. And it's really easy for hosts to think like, oh, I need to pay for speakers. But you got to uh-huh. realize the flip side. Like speakers need to pay to get in front of attendees because otherwise they will have to pay on webinars or their own advertising you know, marketing strategy. I guess it's just it's just a mindset thing because I mean people love coming like I very rarely when I reach out to people for the podcast do people say no and I mean these podcasts like when we schedule them they're scheduled up to be an hour and a half you know two hours and these are all entrepreneurs and everybody's time is valuable but then in my mind for some reason when I think about putting together a summit I'm like I guess I'm just putting uh, undue emphasis on on the word summit it's it, it really is like a podcast that's a little bit more formal like uh, just a yeah little bit plan, planning ahead of time like i have to think about it that way because a lot of the people that i would i would organize for a virtual summit have been on my podcast multiple times and are more than happy to jump on and and, and for me to put together something more formal i'll just have to do a little bit more work in advance but, yeah um, here's the trick rico the same thought you have right now about virtual summit being so kind of like sometimes the word is intimidating, right? Yeah, the, yeah, I think there's definitely an intimidation factor to that. But fundamentally, like you said, it is a podcast but video form. It's just like the channel distribution is different. It's on a website as opposed to on Spotify, right? And then you have potential of having emails and be able to upsell people and, and be able to sell information this way. But that's the exact reason why people are not doing virtual summit. This is why the virtual mm-hmm. market is so wide open because so many people are fearful of it. The same idea of writing a book being so dreadful for so many people like, oh, I can't write a book because it's so hard. But for people who have done it, it's actually not hard at all. Like, it's just a matter of being able to write and publish it. That's it. It is really yeah. simple, but it's not easy because unless you have done it, right? But I'm here to tell you that, I mean, you are more prepared than anyone else because you are experienced at you know, podcasting, you know how to be a host, you know how to find people, the speakers, um, you have a company on the back, on the back end, so you have to have something to offer. Um, yeah, I mean, that's why, that's why I'm like, <laughs> picking yeah. a break. it's like, it's, to me, I'm just like, yo, I've been, this has been like, uh, my, one of my biggest goals, 
if you ask me, like, okay, wh- where do you see your company going in the next three? Days? I actually got interviewed last week, and the person asked me that question, and uh, I was like, it's hard. Obviously, with COVID, things have changed, but I I was already in a stage where I was beginning to shift to thinking. With a consulting business, you're limited in scaling because it's very much a customer focused thing, customer intensive, time intensive work, right? When you're doing done for you services or done with you services. Um, and a lot of it is based around me. A lot of it, a lot of the people wanting to work with us is based around wanting to uh, work with me. And, you know, the more I sort of grow the business, the more clients you bring on, the, the lower quality, the, the service, the customer service level will be. And it's just a natural thing with, and you, I'm sure you know this, right? So right. it's like, how do you scale a consulting business? And when I took um, Sam Alvin's consulting.com, I took his course and he was talking about that. He's like, you want to get to a stage where you have evergreen content that you can sell um online and then you know you have students and stuff like that and then of course some people still want to work with your company and you charge a little bit more of a premium for the done for your services so that was always my thing like this year i was like let's do i started doing webinars a lot in the last year and then this year was like okay i want to create an actual evergreen course that we can sort of test out and sell and uh you know we're like like again the process of doing that but now talking to you i'm like rather than doing the webinar I can turn that webinar that we're working on into maybe my presentation and then uh, interview a bunch of the other people and put together the summit and then pre-sell, you know, a course, which is what I planned on doing with the webinar is pre-selling a course. Mm. And then, you know, and and then the the last step would be if they want to work with us, they can, you know, um, they can, we can provide them with the done for you services. So yeah, it's been, yeah, you really like, uh, kind of completely shifted my mindset uh, <laughs> sorry <dude. laughs> i know you have plans no, this morning <laughs> no no I, no I, I, I love no i love it man i'm ready i just i sent a message to my content marketing guy i was like we need to talk immediately after this podcast is done like uh, <laughs> let me give you like a like a ninja thing man yeah. not only that but you have companies who fund your marketing campaign, right? Like the sponsors mm. pay for your webinar, basically, right? <laughs> like mm. the AdSense, like, like that, that is like unheard of, right? Yeah, that's crazy. Would you have someone pay for your webinars? Like, hey, I'm going <laughs> to pay you like 20,000 US dollars to be a sponsor on your webinar. No, but people do it for Virtual Summit because the perceived value is different. And we know fundamentally the content is the same, just more sessions. Okay, so like the first time you're doing it, let's say, like, I think our email list is probably like a thousand plus people. I mean, obviously, on the the first time we do it, it's going to be hard to get sponsors, right? Like, how do you go about, at what stage do you start getting sponsors? You'd be surprised. How do you, how would you even, how would you go about getting sponsors in in that sense? I mean, every industry is different, right? So let me give you a raw and specific answer. Uh, Mm. Long story short, sponsors love to sponsor. Right, speakers love yeah. to speak. Sponsors love to sponsor. They understand the value of it, especially in FBA, man. In e-commerce, it's like easiest. Uh, we done a my the second so my first summit. I got a fat, I, I had zero email, right? Yeah. I actually had a sponsor reach out to me, give me four thousand US dollars to be a sponsor on it. I was like, all right, I'll take it. You know, uh, so this <laughs> is this is after you started doing ads, I guess. I didn't run ads at all, man. I had one thousand attendees organically from my speakers in my own network. Ah, okay. So okay. I had a thousand people profited 7,000 US dollars, actually 9,000 US dollars. But this, this summit, my first summit, generated me 
78,000 US dollars on the back end because two of the speakers become clients from agency later on. And then mm-hmm. one attendee introduced me to another person that brought me to Malaysia, right? And then this person became my client as well. Uh, so that's on, on, my, on my first summit, right? The very, very first. My second one was on Airbnb. Same guy. I, I, my co-host was the, the face of it. I was the backend guy. So I want to get more experience, right? Same thing. Zero email list. And we went uh, and we self-funded for sponsorship. He had no websites. He wanted to do webinars, but nobody showed on his webinar. He was like, freak. I know my Airbnb thing is good, but I want to invite all the speakers to do it. Um, the whole 99 out. And then we raised 25,000 US dollars in sponsorship. We shall call to sponsors because those people wanted to be in front of their ideal audiences, right? Like the Airbnb host, the business people of it. And we got 8,300 attendees on this summit. And we went from zero to 8,300 in a matter of 45 days. And then mm-hmm. after that, he pre-sold his course. And then now he's like the go-to Airbnb guy within this industry where now people reach out to him to collaborate and do JV launches. My biggest sponsorship success from an email list that wasn't big was for a crypto summit where he, this guy had zero email list and we raised 75,000 US dollars in sponsorship. Uh, one sponsor gave us uh, 40,000 US dollars and then we invested all of that into ads. Uh, this company actually acquired us in a way. And uh, they hired my business partner as the head of marketing for this uh, company that's worth $50 million in the stock market right now. Oh, nice. So obviously, you also, like with the summits, you're running ads. Is there, is there a budget that I should have in mind for, for the overall cost of putting something like this together? Including, uh, well, I guess, the, big, the biggest thing would be the, the ad spent. Yeah, but again, I, I told you like the ad spend side is covered by sponsors, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, let's just, say, let's just say you didn't have sponsors on the first one. Yeah, I think that, you know, whatever, depends on how many attendees you want, right? Um, yeah. I think that between 3,000 to 5,000 is pretty like, okay. I think that's a good start. And mm-hmm. obviously, if the funnel is converting, like, you want to do more of it. Makes sense. So, okay, summit to course to potentially services. Is that the general flow of how yeah. it works? So the, the thing is, naturally people will ask, like, hey man, I don't have time for the course. Do it, can you just do it for me, right? So those yeah. hot leads actually reach out to you for the done for you. So when it comes to the sales conversation, it's actually them trying to persuade you why should, they should pay you money. Yeah. And that's a much easier conversation than if you were trying to persuade them on the virtue of what you're doing, right? And this is how we charge premium prices because you know, like people are like, Hey, like I've seen you do virtual summit. I want in like how, how, just how much man, like, Hey, let's have a conversation. Right. So this is like why now, like we we're focusing more and more on, on the, on the low end tickets so that our high end tickets are like more expensive than ever before. And you, you guys still do like, you know, done for you. If I, if I came to you and said, okay, Eric, like uh, this putting together this whole virtual summit thing is, is seems like it's going to be, you know, a little bit too much for us or, you know, but can you help us put it together? Do you still do that? Does it, is uh, that something that you still yes. And the, yes. And the answer is also, we are really, really careful of who we help. So we have an audit system and all kind of things, but uh, long story short, yes. How would you go about doing that? And just like, I'm looking at your website. So it's like book a discovery call. This was kind of like our discovery call. So what was, uh, <laughs> <laughs> what would the next steps be? 
So we, we book on a discovery call. And then if that's something you want to do, uh, the next step is what we call the uh, 4S, which is a summit strategy success session, where it's like a VIP day for three hours with myself, a copywriter, and a, our internal Facebook ads person, where we mm-hmm. map out your uh, virtual summit roadmap from A to Z with the speakers, the messaging, the offer, uh, the sponsors, uh, how to raise money, and basically having a guidebook uh, from A to Z of all the things that needs to be created. And uh, this, this will be the old profitable virtual summit uh, playbook, essentially. And if you want us to help you build that, we can. Or if you want to work with this blueprint and build yourself, you can, because you have crystal clarity on exactly all the moving parts. You know, I have our content marketing guy and we've been working on this stuff um, ourselves internally. Uh, I think w- discussing with you, I've j- it's just given me more of a clear view of like the, o- the the overall picture. Like in my mind, I saw the, you know, the webinar, the promoting of the webinar and I saw the course, but I didn't really see how I could fit it all together. And I've also been, you know, with, with doing webinars and just seeing the climate of how things have changed webinars are still good but i you know talking to other guys in the marketing space they've talked about webinars kind of maybe uh fading out yeah so i was like okay yeah exactly like there's just so many of them so i was like okay so what else could we do so now talking to you it's a kind of like it's made it crystal clear to be like what the best approach would be for what we want to do I guess and then when it comes to like whether we do it ourselves versus with you, it's really just going to come down to like, you know, the the cost of it, or and also just me feeling confident with how much time my team can spend on something like this. But considering that we were putting a lot of effort into it already, I, I would say that you know it would have to have to see how everything fits together. But I already know like the interviews. I I just have to sit down and make a list of people and just kind of try to structure each one. That's, that should be relatively straightforward. It's, it's, it's just a matter of like getting people to to book a time and, and setting up those calls. I mean, you're doing it already. I mean, yeah. that's like the genius part for you, man. Like the, 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 the biggest part of the people and it's like, oh, I don't know how to be a host, right? You nailed mm-hmm. that part already. The, the yeah. whole equation or maybe question mark for you is like the funnel side, which is what a VIP day is for. You know, like getting clarity on the offer, on the funnel, and on the tag, on the setup, and uh, like actually a lot of our partners, like they did a VIP day and they had a team attend it as well, and then they executed themselves. And you know, this is going back to this uh, e-commerce summit where we had a VIP day, and they're like, "Cool, we got everything we needed. Thanks, Eric." And then they did it themselves, and they did great, right? Yeah, no, I would definitely would want to have my team on and, and my business partner on for that. So we should definitely set that up, man. <laughs> I, I hijacked this podcast, but I hope that my audience enjoys this. I, I think a lot of the people that um, I do have a lot of uh, my audience that are, you know, in the consulting space um, or people that have been in e-commerce for a while and are doing really great and trying to transition and, and, and pivot into teaching. So I think this is this is gonna be really good, and it's the first time that I've been on the podcast where I'm like, I got a business idea directly from the podcast, and then did like a discovery call in the podcast. So I think that would be mm. <laughs> interesting, interesting for my audience. Just in in terms of like a, a sort sort of closing questions around this, what has been your biggest success? Oh, let's start. What was the most difficult thing about starting your business? And then what was your biggest or proudest entrepreneurial moment to date? 
Um, the first thing that you said, like my prize moment was, well, my first time it was great, right? Like the money was great. But when I saw on the Airbnb summit on the first day that we made 32,000 US dollars when I woke up, I didn't believe in it. Like this, I was like, those numbers are fake. There's no way this is real. And that was kind of like, huh, making money online is possible. And I was like 20 ish. It's like, huh, I can make a living out of this. I can do more of it. So obviously like that fueled me to do more of it. So that was my, my first like kind of aha moment that you can make online, uh, make money online. Uh, the hardest thing for me was, I think that's something a lot of people relate to is you can make money, but finding people that share similar values, the work ethic, the mindset, and are around your age and be able to grow together and find these people you can call them as really good friends is the hardest thing, right? And people who value community, once they have found their home or, 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 or tribe that makes them feel like, like family, like you never want to leave them because you know how rare that is. And I, I've been blessed now that I have some, I have great friends around the world, but there were so many times where, you know, as I was grinding, as I was working, I was surrounded by entrepreneurs that were great entrepreneurs, but I didn't want to be friends, friends with them. Like I respected them. I liked them, but I, I wasn't excited to, to hang out with them as, as friend to friend from a really deep level. So it took me a year and a half to find that, that community and, you know, you can always, you always end up thinking like, oh, I'm, 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 I'm too hard on myself. I'm, I do I need to settle. But just, you know, that there are people who share everything that you share value wise and be able to push through those boundaries. And when you do find someone, you like, you never let them go. Or if they change, they change, but you just know how rare it is. So you are really grateful for it every day. Makes sense. What? Where do you see your business or yourself going in the next, let's say, three to five years? Virtual Summit, at the end of the day, is a tool for me, right? Like webinar is a tool. Virtual Summit is a great tool. But I just want to use that to go my business and then see where it takes me. I want to be in Virtual Summit game as long as I can, as long as I would like to. But I do want to be more vocal about the entrepreneurial space and what it takes to be an entrepreneur to... Uh, my audience, which is like in Southeast Asia, there's a lot of misguided uh, young entrepreneurs in Asia where they see a lot of fake gurus or fake teachers. And I don't know how much you've seen this, but a lot of like failing entrepreneurs in America come to Asia and they like portray themselves as someone who's doing great. But I'm like, dude, your numbers are not even real or true. It's like, and those people buy a lot from those people. Like a lot of the entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs like buy from them because they're hopeful that those people have something to share. And I want to bring my friends that know who are doing great things and great speakers to Asia to be more vocal and be more of a face or leading example of what is possible while being also young, right? There's a lot of teachers in Asia, a lot of gurus in Asia, but they're like 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. But I don't see a lot of people in their 20s. So being able to help people who are, either high schoolers or college students or fresh graduates be able to build a businesses online. It's something that I actually see myself actually be doing. Uh, I've been doing actually for the past year. I want to do it more and more for the next couple of years. And then do you see yourself still living in Asia at that time? Definitely. Yeah. I, I moved out from the U S for this reason to be more close to my demographic. I want to serve. So uh, I lived in the U S for three years and I was like, 
there's only so much I can do without being in Asia. So this is why I moved to uh, Bangkok and uh, it's been great so far. Makes sense. What is the smallest thing you've done that's brought you the largest results in your business? That's a great question. Um, I would say my book, I mean, writing a book is a big project, but it doesn't seem big in the grand scheme of things. Uh, But that's the first thing that came to my mind. My book generated me like 90,000 US dollars uh, on the back end of it. The, on, on the sales front end, maybe like $70 because of Amazon commission <laughs> and publishing commission, but on the back end, just a meal of clients. So, you know, this is something that I would highly recommend any agency owner to have because there's like a walking business card that is weighted by a lot of authority. How many, how many pages is, is, uh, is your book? 120. How long does it take you to put that together? To write the book, two months. Two months. Which is essentially my agency process. Like, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. It's like from A to Z, what I do for my agency, right? Uh, yeah. And I just wrote it and it's like a step-by-step guide. And if you want us to do that for you, then like a VIP day after that, it's like, hey, just contact us and hire us. I thought about putting together a book. We've also had some of those internal discussions. It's, just, it's one, of the, one of the things on my list of things to do soon. Do you want to hear another hack? Last one? Sure. So, you know, virtual summit, right? It's like you interview other people. There's a lot of great books out there now that are just compilation of answers and questions, like Tim Ferriss, you know, Tools of Titans, compilation of answers. The uh, Gary Vee book, Ask Gary Vee, is a compilation of question and answers. You can literally transcribe your virtual summit and put it into a book and have the first 50% of you sharing whatever you want to share about and the last 50%, which is like a compilation of the best question and answers given by other people. So you have like a 200, 300 page book where you only you know, wrote maybe like 70 to 80 pages. Writing that down. <laughs> <laughs> and then the last question would be, can you recommend three books, podcasts, or YouTube channels that uh, you'd like people to check out if they were to get to know you better? Yeah. My favorite author of all time is Ryan Holiday. I love his book, Ego's Enemy. But when it comes to marketing, I love his other book called The Perennial Seller, which is like how to create a product company or a work that can last centuries. And a big part of it that he says is two things, actually. One, build an email list. Uh, this is how Kevin Hart became the highest paid comedian in the whole world. It's because he built an co- email list and wasn't dependent on Sony uh, to get his gigs. Two, making things free so that people can trust you more, right? And this kind of you know, enhanced the idea of Virtual Summit because one, Virtual Summit builds an email list and two, builds your authority and free, uh, it is free, quote unquote. So that was great. Uh, the third book I would recommend is Mastery by Robin Greeney which talks about how the greatest of all time learn from their mentors. And they basically like soaked as a sponge. And, and one of the biggest insights I got from this book was how can you steal from your mentors while also shining light on them? And I think podcasts or writing a book or having a virtual summit is a great way for anyone to do that, you know, to, to grow your authority while also shining lights on your mentors. And a podcast that I love to listen to is the Tom Beer podcast. Great insight, great question asker, a great host. And I learned a lot from him when it comes to conducting interviews. Quick story about that. Like you used to have the YouTube channel, I think it was called Quest. 
inside right. Quest. And that was like, I discovered that like my first year of starting the company. And, and yeah, he's, he's a fantastic interviewer. I, I, I stole a lot of his, some of, some of the way he asks questions. Like a, a lot of my interview style is basically a combination of like Tim Ferriss, Tom Bilyeu, and then Joe Rogan. And uh, he was uh, he was talking. He one time he interviewed his business partners in the Quest uh, Quest Bar company, and uh, he was talking about the first time he met one of the guys. And they were they sat down and they had a conversation about what they wanted to accomplish from from starting this business together. And they asked one guy that that question, and he was like, "Well, you know, I'm trying to become Batman." And they were like, "What?" <laughs> was like, "Who is this guy? Like, why is he why, is he crazy?" And then it was an interesting insight into how that guy thinks about life. He was like, well, if you break down what Batman is or who Batman is as a symbol, it's not, and Bruce Wayne, it's not necessarily like just being a, a vigilante or a superhero. It's, this is a guy who went through adversity as a kid, took that pain and then used it to become something greater. And he is an entrepreneur. He is somebody that's traveled around the world somebody that knows mixed martial arts speaks multiple languages all of those things are are like you can accomplish those things like he's like you i can do i do martial arts already i'm an entrepreneur i just have to become more successful i travel around the world i want to travel more i want to learn different languages and that was sort of like his life philosophy and that was something that i also adopted in my thinking is you know when people ask me it's like what do you want to i'm saying i want to become i'm i'm trying to become batman mm. and, and it always sounds like when people ask me when it, people ask me that i answer that like answer people look at me weird but then i break it down like that and it's like yeah you you can become batman if you just break it down into these steps and you are pushing forward in in all of those areas you know, you're not actually going to be wearing a superhero costume and jumping off of rooftops, but uh, right. <laughs> you know, you could, whole, you could, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could, I guess if you, if you, if you had enough money, you probably could actually. Right. But, um, but yeah, no, I just like, that's the, uh, I just, when you mentioned that, I, I felt like it was important to, to share, share that story, but yeah, man. So awesome. This is why I love podcasts because you just never know. Like, uh, I mean, you you reached out to us. I didn't know who you were before. Obviously, I did some background research so that we, you know, before confirming that we would do the interview. But yeah, it's just like I love talking to people because uh, when you talk to entrepreneurs, you get reinvigorated about what you're doing. It gives you ideas. You you make great connections, and I, and I I think this podcast could have been three hours. But obviously, I have to get back to work, and I'm sure you have to. You have to, you've got stuff to do today. But we should definitely uh, we should do this again sometime, man. And then let's let's keep in touch. I really enjoyed this. Yeah, likewise, man. Thanks for having me. So, if any, if uh, my audience wants to reach out to you, how can they? How can they contact you? I'm in the most active on Instagram, so at yangarig20. Uh, and if you want to find me and find me through my book, uh, I have a book called The Virtual Summit Launch Secrets. The virtual sign out formula, sorry, and it's on Amazon. And uh, yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Awesome. We will definitely link those up in the show notes if you want to find them. That's sourcefinancial.com slash meet in China. Uh, if you want to reach out to us, it's podcast at sourcefinancial.com. And of course, check out the YouTube channel, sourcefinancial, all one word. And uh, we'll see you guys next week.
won't feel me till everybody say they love you, but it's not love. And your suit is ox blood. And the girl you fucking hate you and your friends faded off shots of. What you ordered to forget about the game that you on top of. Your famous girlfriend ass keep getting thicker than the plot does. And when you forget her, that's when she pop up. And you gotta drop, but you ride around with the top up. Or get three SUVs for niggas dressed like refugees. And deal with the questions about all your excessive needs.